After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. All glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so the scriptures will be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known, in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. You get some times when you see movies, especially old westerns, to where they get shot 35 times and somehow can say goodbye to 10 cousins because the last words just stretch on. That's what's happening here. But when we get last words, we also get that moment of what is important. Because when the last words happen, at least for me, that the end of the story always draws my mind back to the beginnings. And as I've watched my own country sink into chaos, I realize whatever is coming, whatever the signals, whatever's next, is the end of some things now. 
Now, this isn't a reason for us to become defensive or combative. For living things to mature, for living things to grow and to make room for the next, for new life, certain parts have to die. It's actually the beauty of America even. The beauty of America is not eternal consistency. The beauty of America is change and being changed by the humans whose humanity gets recognized by later generations that earlier generations couldn't recognize. In that growth towards a shared radical humanity, we get something beautiful. However, the ends bring us back to the beginnings and the stories which brought us to this moment. Because the stories and the voices which define us, they're not to be heard so that we always obey. They're not to be heard to be coercive or domineering. We listen to them because we know that just like creation didn't come out of nothing, but creation in Genesis 1 came out of the chaotic seas, which is quoted in John 1, our world doesn't come out of nothing. It comes out of the stories that we tell and retell that shape our community and affect human lives. As I've been listening to the people as I traveled through Oregon with my family, I started to hear certain aspects of how their stories start, the beginnings. And it starts with fear. I saw as five shops that are all gun shops in a row were completely out of ammunition. I started asking the clerks and random people like, hey, I've never seen this before. I'm almost 40 years old. Um, what's going on? And they said, everyone is scared of other people. They're stockpiling munitions right now. They're buying thousands of rounds for the war. They told me a story of fear, that change was coming and they were hoping by the right of power, by the right of the sword, by, by the idea of ammunition, that they could stop change. And it might mean that they were scared, but anger and reactive tendencies is so much more comfortable for us than fear. Because when we can get anger and we can get amped up that way, we don't have to face our unsettledness. So how we come to see the others, the different, those not us, will actually prime our reactions. Are they dangerous or not? As I was talking to one gentleman who had to go to a hospital near the city, he was trying to go through how many guns he should take. I said, why? He goes, well, what if something happens to me? I need to shoot my way out. You see, fear drives us to be defensive. Defensiveness causes us to be violent. So when we begin our stories, and this is where we get back into the gospel, when we begin our stories from ideas of total depravity, or we insist that we must highlight the sin or brokenness of everyone before we can hear them, Sin and brokenness then define our story and our reactions. It will ask us to buy more bullets rather than to invest in more people and charities. The fear response is similar to what the disciples' reactions were as they heard the last words of Jesus. As Jesus comes into John 13, because his last words are from 1333 to 18.2. And this is the heart of the Gospel of John. So their fear response would shape it as in 1333, Jesus says, children, I'm still with you for a little while and you will look for me. And just as I told the Jewish leaders, where I am going, you cannot follow. 
And then it said, Simon Peter jumps up, frightened. He's the one that we'll know in a little bit. He's going to be the one primed because of fear and concern to draw the sword and chop off the ear of the guard. He is the one who tries to ignite the war. It says, Lord, where are you going that I cannot follow you? Where are you going and why can I not follow are the questions shaped by fear. He didn't want change. Change meant the death of the dream he had. But Jesus reshapes the story by changing the focus from the coming battle against Rome to reshaping the world driven by the beauty of those in front of us. And remember, as we hear some of these words for those in front of us, that the ones Jesus is talking to are the tax collecting co-conspirators who sided with Rome and became rich by oppressing their own people, by the zealots who would raise an army and said freedom through coercion, random fishermen who with James and John, when they asked Jesus, remember who will be at your right and left, they're asking who's gonna be the rulers so you had wannabe rulers, dreaming thugs, and tax-collecting co-conspirators. These people did not have the imagination to see what change could be. These people weren't ready for the last words of Jesus. They were ancient boogaloos getting hyped over the coming war. And Jesus reminded them of the beginnings of why he came why God sent him. And so as we look at this in John 17, we see that 1333 to 18.2 creates the whole story. So if we're going to think of it as the whole, I just really want two things to stick in our minds as we go into discussion. As we think of the world that we're looking around, when we have fear sometimes driving the stories, so when we describe the other, when we describe difference, when we see this thing of that's so collected that as Carl talked about last week, we want to be one. The oneness was with the tax collector, the random fishermen and the zealots. The oneness were with three people who could not have a more different imagining for what the kingdom of God would be here. He says in 1713, but now I am coming to you to God. And I'm saying these things in this world so they may experience my joy completed in themselves. So one, I want us to think that where is the beginning of the story? When we begin in sin and death, when we begin in brokenness, when we begin in the total depravity of humanity, we miss the true beginnings and beauty. Jesus came because you sitting in front of me around our computer screens, us as a community are the fulfillment of Jesus's joy that it says that I am coming to the Father and I'm saying these things, which were surrounded by the unity, the prayers of love, the call for togetherness, so that us as a community may experience Jesus's joy completed in us, which means your very presence, the beauty of you, your ability to be here, no matter what differences we have in the view of the future, are the hoped for reality of Jesus, that he said, my joy is complete in you. 
which to me is not a story of brokenness, a story of hope. It's not a story of raging a war against Rome. It's a story of a new expanded table that can include people I never imagined. And the other part of 17, which pulls from the first part of his last words in 13, you will see that we're not called to leave. The idea when we talk about the kingdom of God, sometimes in our head, it can remove us. So we say, we don't have to care about the people saying we're, that we're oppressed. We don't have to care about the corruption in this world because this will never be heaven. We don't have to care because this isn't heaven. But Jesus says in 1718 that we are sent, those of us around this table, those of us that are completing the joy of Christ, those of us who realize the beauty of humanity, why Jesus came, is because you are so beautiful and precious that you are the very fulfillment of his joy to be here, sent us into the world just as he was sent. So our present must be incarnate. The incarnation of Jesus wasn't the end or the beginning of incarnation as we are sent in the same way. But it gives us some parameters of the sentness. So as we reimagine this way forward, and remember in the back of these people's minds, these were first century boogaloos. These were people arming up, saying, Rome will fall. These were the ones calling for a war. In 13, 33, and 34, we've all heard these ones. It says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, in order that, or resulting in, that they will all know that you are my disciples as you love one another. So the potential for other people to see the beauty of what we can do actually is a responsive element to driven by love, not fear, the embrace of all these people mentioned that were sitting around the table. And coming towards the end of 17, he closes out with the same command. In 1725, he says, righteous father at the end of this prayer, the world does not know you, but I have known you. And they know that you sent me. And I make you known to them. And I will continue to make you known in order that, it's another results clause, in order that the love which you have loved me would be in them and that I would be in them. So it gives us two chain events that begins and ends the last words. He says, as you fulfill my joy, as you're the full embodiment of everything I hope for because of your beauty, your virtue, and your goodness, learn to love as I have loved you. That is the only response. Notice that with all the differencing opinions there, there was not an appeal to orthodoxy. There was not an appeal to control. No one was to say what the other people thought, believed, or did. They only had a responsive nature towards each other's needs. Love as I have loved you. And then he said at the end that it'll be Jesus's job to make known to us the Father and the Father's love again. So as we move towards each other in a way that's incarnate, as we try to let go of that fear response that asks us to arm up and says, I'll sit in each other's humanity and show the love, remember, said in the beginning of John, the way I've loved you, it said the word was the life and the light of all mankind. The word became flesh and lived amongst us. So as we move towards incarnation with each other, even in a chaotic world, that 
we will show that we're truly the disciples of Jesus. And as we enter into that state of togetherness and responsive action, Jesus says, in this, O righteous Father, I will make your name known to them, and I will continue to do that so they will realize your love in them. So as we move towards each other, we'll realize the love of the Father, which becomes a self-feeding cycle. In the presence of the zealots, the tax collectors, and the wannabe ruling fishermen. And this leads into that point of questioning and concern that this is what Jesus imagined. Jesus' last words, this is the most important part, was not orthodoxy. The most important part was not being right or correct. The most important part was moving from defensive posturing against Rome to active engagement of the needs in front of you because Jesus. And he promised in this, the righteous father will be revealed to us, which will fuel the love and draw towards each other, which raises the question, if our ability to love God hinders our ability to see the incarnate reality of the other person in front of us, if our call towards Jesus, towards religion, towards faith, causes us to say, no, it is more right that we gather arms rather than open tables, then we're not fulfilling the hope of John. John's Jesus in chapter 17 said that his hope is fulfilled in us as we move towards each other with a responsive love that we've seen in Jesus. And he gets to repeatedly tell us and show us and make known to us the name of the Father and his love with us. And it creates that tension.